former brothel turned Airbnb nestled in the heart of an historic Northern Californian gold rush town. Deceptibly spacious, 3,200 square foot folk Victorian, this charming period guest house boasts four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and at least 12 ghostly residents, and maybe more. Sound like the holiday home for you? Well, if you're in the rental market for a haunted house, you've come to the right place. I'm Caitlin Blackwell Baines. Welcome to Haunted Homes. Now my comrades, they all loved me well, the jolly saucy crew. A few hard cases I will admit, though they were brave and true. Whatever the pitch, they would never flinch, they would never fret nor whine. Like good old bricks, they stood the kicks in the days of 49. North Main Street, Jackson, California. Located in Amador County, a region famed for its gold mining past and its rich, fertile soil perfect for grape growing, this historic holiday home is ideally located just minutes away from some of the best independent wineries in California. Built in the 1870s, 315 North Main Street, or Bethany's Home Sweet Haunted Home, as it is now known, is not named for its original owner nor for its present proprietor, Elsie Lottie. Instead, it's named for one of the several ghosts that reportedly haunt the property, the first to make themselves known to Elsie after she purchased the house in 2021. She has no idea who the woman is, but speculates that it may have been one of the sex workers who plied her trade in the house when it served as a brothel. Elsie didn't know the property was haunted when she bought it, but she was hardly surprised given the region's extremely colourful past. The settlement of Jackson, located 48 miles south of Sacramento and 120 miles northwest of San Francisco, was established in 1848, the same year that one James W. Marshall discovered gold in the nearby Sierra foothills, kicking off the Great California Gold Rush, bringing some 300,000 prospectors to the wider region. Because of its year-round natural spring and the creek running through the area, the mining camp at Jackson quickly became an important supply and transport center a convenient stopping point on the route from Sacramento to the Southern Mines. By 1850, its population had swelled to 1,500 treasure-hunting inhabitants. Here, many would make their fortune, while countless others would meet an untimely end. In fact, Jackson bore witness to the worst mining disaster in American history. The fire at Argonaut Gold Mine in 1922 killed 47 men who were trapped in mining shafts in nearby Kennedy Mine, 4,600 feet below ground. But these were far from the first or last casualties of Jackson. This, after all, was the Wild West, where prospectors faced not only the dangers of the mining effort itself, but also the ever-present threat of a fairly lawless society, loosely governed and populated by a mob of ruthless, money-hungry gold diggers, in the original sense of the term. Properties like 315 North Main Street once served as boarding houses for the miners, but also doubled as brothels, gambling dens, and speakeasies, and over the years hosted a vast array of unsavory characters. Do the spirits of these gunslinging outlaws still remain at 315 North Main Street? Current owner Elsie would be the best person to ask. Let's meet Elsie. My name is Elsie Lottie, and I own... 
Bethany's home sweet haunted home in Jackson, California, which is about an hour outside of Sacramento, also not too far from San Francisco as well. For a living, my real job is I actually manage the research department at a children's hospital, and I also run a dog rescue that focuses mostly on special needs animals. So I have lots of really adorable puppies in diapers with cleft palates and one eyeballs running all over my house. So Elsie is a busy woman, and running a haunted Airbnb isn't even her main gig. In fact, she never really intended to get into the paranormal tourism industry in the first place. Does the medical researcher even believe in ghosts? Do I believe in ghosts? I don't understand how anybody doesn't really believe in ghosts, but that's also because I've had experiences since I was seven years old with them. Although when people always get confused because I work in science, I always tell them that the conservation of energy law states that you cannot create or get rid of energy. So even in science, it seems that spirits are understood. The first time I saw a spirit, I was seven years old and my cousin and I were on swings at my house and we looked over the fence and we saw a shadow man walk from behind a stack of firewood. But I would eventually have quite a few experiences. However, when I was a teenager, I eventually really did shut it down and had some experiences here or there and actually maybe didn't realize all the experiences I were I was having until I bought this house. After years immersed in science, suppressing her sensitivities to the spirit world, Elsie never expected that the purchase of a new investment property would radically change her perspective, reawakening a long-dormant connection to the hereafter. She did, however, recognize that any period property in the town of Jackson had the potential to be haunted. So, the haunted house is located in Jackson, California, which is an old gold mining town, and there's not really much shock. I think most people know that most gold mining towns seem to be haunted. Part of that has to do with just the fact that those metals kind of hold those energies longer. And then there's also quite a bit of trauma that's involved in that. So we are right on Main Street and of this, you know, 1850s Wild West town. The house dates back to the 1870s itself, where it used to be a brothel and a boarding house. So we have murders, we have miners dying in the mines. We have all the good things that make those kind of haunts. Of course, when I bought the house, I didn't know any of this because I wasn't involved in the paranormal and I had bought it to be a long-term rental. But I couldn't get tenants to stay there longer than a couple of months. And so I eventually just decided to turn it into an Airbnb because I figured, well, it's one thing to visit, you know, haunted places for a short time. But a long time might be very difficult. You know, regulars coming in there and staying for several months or year contracts. And so I just felt like a better move. I bought the house in May of 2021 in the height of the pandemic. 
I, again, didn't know that the house was haunted. Nobody ever told me. They did tell me that it used to be a brothel. It used to be a boarding house. But nothing about any other history of haunts at the location. It wasn't until my final walkthrough that I realized that the house was haunted. Before that, they hadn't hidden from me. And I told my real estate agent and my handyman that in this particular room, which was the last room we had gone into, that I didn't like it and that there was a girl in the closet. And they just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. I told one of my friends who knew some paranormal investigators and they were going to be in the area investigating um, a hotel. And she asked them if they wanted to come check it out and they did. So they showed up at like 1.30 on a Saturday afternoon. I had never spoken to them. They had never spoken to me. And at the time, I really didn't know anything about the house. I had never even been there at night or anything else. But they walk in and this woman, she walks into that bedroom and says, I don't like that room. There's a girl in the closet. And I said, I know. And it kind of just went from there. They had so much activity uh, immediately that they asked to cancel their investigation at the hotel and to come there that night instead. So my first time ever at this house at night was a paranormal investigation, which I realized probably set me up to have a little bit of a questionable relationship with the house in the beginning. I would say it was tenuous and a little bit scary before. So yeah, I now know so much about the house and the spirits. And of course, so we have a very different relationship, but you would not have caught me upstairs at night until I was forced to. The element of the unknown left Elsie feeling wary. In the early days, as renovations were being done on the house in order to prepare it for rental, paranormal activity was at an all-time high. Elsie avoided the upper floor and hunkered down in a basement apartment. She simply didn't feel comfortable in the rest of the house. But this was all to change when she finally began learning a bit more about the house's history, which in turn helped her to identify some of the spirits within. So when I decided to open as an Airbnb, I had to go get business licenses and all this stuff. And I was lucky enough to run into a woman there who also does paranormal investigations. And so she helped me get some information. I didn't really find too much on the house. Well, eventually she kind of wanted to know if I was full of it. And so she came over one night to see if the house was haunted and immediately was, you know, had the nausea and her ears ringing and all these things that they can do to kind of affect uh, people to let them know that they're there. But you always hear like somebody in the other room, like noises in the other room. It's never in the room you're in. It's always just another room. So we were downstairs in the kitchen, for example, and we're hearing noises in the basement. So we go into the basement and she introduces herself and she says, what is your name? And clear as day, we get, it is Steve. I was like, who is Steve? Because, like, I have the list of all the owners. And then I realized that one of the owners' name was Stefano. So when I had been searching for him, I had been searching for Stefano without any luck. After that situation, I went and started looking for Steve. And that's when all of this world opened up to me. Steve or Stefano Giovanni Giuseppe Tuffinelli, an Italian immigrant born in the Tuscany region in 1891, was not, as it turns out, the original owner of the house. But he was perhaps one of its most colourful residents, and his family occupied the property for the longest period. 
So Steve bought the house in the 20s, and he died in 1981. His family owned it until the mid-90s. But he came from Italy. He basically mostly was like a bartender, but he, you know, he had a business mind, but he was bootlegging. He was running a gambling house. He was sentenced twice, convicted twice for a high grading, which is conspiracy to sell stolen gold to the government. So basically he was selling booze and had this boarding house, but he was getting all this gold from the miners who were stealing it from the mine. He wasn't actually stealing it himself, but he would collect it and he was melting it down. And then he was sending it to, they say his wife, but they didn't get married until later. Um, niece in San Francisco. And then every week they did this and she would take it to the mint and exchange it for cash. Well, after 12 weeks, the government goes like, wait, where's this woman getting this really good gold from? And they did an investigation. Steve ended up getting 18 months in Leavenworth for this. Although after 15 months, his uh, it went to the Supreme Court and they overruled it because basically he was convicted because his girlfriend said, well, you can't expect miners to work for $4 a day and not steal gold. So basically saying that she knew that the gold was stolen. So again, there was bootlegging charges, there was gambling charges, but those were all not really taken too seriously in town during Prohibition. The newspaper advertised for the local saloons. So yeah, it wasn't really taken to that. None of that was taken very seriously, but the high grading was. As Elsie says, the Prohibition era legislation, which outlawed the sale of alcohol across the country from 1920 to 1933, wasn't taken very seriously in places like Jackson. Saloons were a firmly entrenched element of life in the Wild West, popular gathering places not only for miners, fur trappers, cowboys and lumberjacks, but also a centre for politicians and members of law enforcement to congregate and consolidate their power and influence over the community. For the most part, the law turned a blind eye to the fact that many saloons were just shoddy fronts for bordellos, opium dens and other illegal operations. Ironically, it was partly due to the popularity and ubiquity of saloons in the West that led to the establishment of the Anti-Saloon League, a national organization founded in 1893, which rose to become the most powerful prohibition lobby in the country. Their efforts resulted in the passing of the 18th Amendment, the prohibition of the sale of alcohol across the nation, which went into effect on the 17th of January, 1920. But according to local historian Deborah Colleen Cook, Steve Toffinelli's bar, the Garibaldi Saloon was still up and running a year later, and not only that, she says, it was the most popular and patronized speakeasy and illicit drinking spa on Jackson's North Main Street in 1921. Still, Steve got himself in plenty of trouble. Even after serving time for his first foray into high grading in the 1920s, he's back at it again in 1939, this time trying to pawn his goods in Los Angeles, a bit further afield and presumably a safer bet. But the value of the stolen gold was $300,000, which in today's currency is close to $7 million, a conspicuously large amount of precious metal. However, at this point, Steve must have had friends in high places, because he only served six months in county jail and paid just $1,000 in fines. It probably didn't hurt that his brother was then the Jackson chief of police. And all the while, Steve was operating a dubious boarding house, read brothel slash gambling den, at 315 North Main Street. And not only that, he was also running the hotel across the street, which he leased for $140 a month, and then rented out individual rooms to minors, making more than $1,400 a month. He was a real slick character. But in reality, 
Steve Toffinelli was probably not the first person to bring ill repute upon 315 North Main Street. It seemingly started with its very first owner. Back to Elsie. The house was first owned by Maggie Guerra. Now, women weren't allowed to own properties in the 1870s technically, but Jackson was kind of always on the frontier of feminism in the weirdest ways. Like, for example, there's a woman um, at the, in the cemetery. The cemetery is only 700 feet away. But there's a woman in the cemetery, and her name is Madame Pantaloon, and it basically says that, you know, she was run out of uh, the other cities, like Virginia City and San Francisco, because she refused to wear a dress, but in Jackson, nobody cared. So Maggie, 1877, buys this property for $350, which would be about $360,000 today. She was 21, paid in cash, single. Okay, so likely it was a boarding, uh, it was a female boarding house, which is another term for brothel. She eventually got married to, uh, she met a man who was a recent widow himself, and they would go on to have three kids. The only son died when he was about two and a half. We don't know from what. And then Maggie ended up dying when she was in her early 40s. Also don't know of what, because the newspapers just say the son of the wife of William Holder died. The Guerra family tenure at 315 North Main Street was shrouded in a pall of sadness. Tragedy seemed to plague them at every turn. So after Maggie died, her brother ended up his family moving in there. And so Frank Guerra, his wife, Amanda, their daughters, and then their son, John. Well, Frank went off to work in mines in Arizona and kind of just left the whole family. So it was kind of up to John to help support his family. Now, at that point in time, it seems that they may have been running the house as a boarding house, but I think it was a legit boarding house at that time. But this was a mining town, but it was also a party town. And basically, as the newspaper said, anything would turn into a dance. Like, it was hard for them not to have church services turn into dances around there because they just liked to party. So a political rally one night turned into a dance and everybody was partying until the wee hours of the morning. The next day, John goes to work. He's like 21 years old. He works in the mine probably 12 hours. And then on the way out, he's on the skip, which is like the elevator that takes you up and down. And he falls down, all the way down the shaft, and he ends up dying. That was a tragedy. You know, not only that he lost his life, but also for all these girls that were being supported. Because it was his mom, his sis- his three sisters, plus they were raising one of Maggie's daughters. I think that two of the siblings uh, took the daughters because, you know, why would William be responsible for raising his own child? So John ended up dying in the mine. And then it was being used as a boarding house because now his mom, Amanda, really needed money. And one of the people who were staying with her, his name was Manuel Gonzalez. And he also fell down the skip. We don't know the circumstances. And he ended up breaking his neck. That man, though, lived for over a month before he died. And I can't imagine how horrific that would have been. But they brought him back to the house instead of taking him to the hospital, which I thought was weird, although the house across the street, the doctor did live there. So maybe that was why. But eventually he was taken to the hospital, which is where he ended up dying, he said, over a month later. We're talking 1906, no drugs, no painkillers, no antibiotics. 
<laughs> no good can come from this situation. So I'm, I'm guessing that was a pretty horrific existence from him. And then William, Maggie's husband, ended up drowning in the creek in 1909. So the house backs up to literally the the retaining wall for the creek is the basement foundation. So we are, when I say we're on the creek, sometimes the creek is actually like coming into the house when it floods, when we get too much rain. So, which, you know, also probably adds to the haunting. So there's been a fair share of tragedies. There's so much death and tragedy associated with the property that Elsie will likely never know the true extent of it. She's gleaned bits and pieces from extant newspaper reports and the living family members of those who once lived there. Miners boarding there died in similarly tragic accidents, a crime of passion betwixt a lovelorn ex-boyfriend and his former paramour's new husband ended in seven fatal gunshots. This is just the beginning. As Elsie explains, she simply can't ever know what truly happened there. But in spite of all this, Elsie still has mainly positive feelings about the property. Or at least she does now that she understands it a bit better. The house is alive and and it draws people to it. So I miss the house. Like I miss it like it is a an animal, a pet. I've never felt like that about a house before. But if I'm gone, I, I genuinely miss it. And so also my housekeeper, for example, she drives by it every single day just to check in on it. So I think, yeah, it draws people to it. And I think that's another reason why we have all these spirits. So I think that the why it's haunted is kind of a complicated situation, but that is why there's so many. So what do the spirits at 315 North Main Street actually do to make themselves known? They can move things. They can hide things. If you make me mad, they might hide your keys. And I think sometimes a lot of the moving and stuff, I think they think it's funny. But if you make me mad, yeah, they're probably going to mess with you. Or if you don't take care of the house, like if you're messy, if you're messy and sloppy, they're going to mess with you too. Uh, they want their house, they like their house clean. And I think that's one of the reasons they like me, because I take care of the house and they appreciate that. The guests who stay at Bethany's home sweet haunted home also seem to have resoundingly positive experiences. Elsie has managed to rack up a solid five-star review average on Airbnb after just two years of being on the rental market. A standard review reads something like this. Excellent location even comes with a few spirits, too. I came with a group specifically to interact with the paranormal. In that regard, Elsie was incredibly willing to donate her time to investigate the home with us, provided extensive history of the home, and was available at a moment's notice to communicate. The home is located very near Main Street, Jackson, with excellent restaurants and fun shops. Elsie does great with providing information regarding arrival, check-ins, directions, etc., and even had snacks for us in the well-furnished kitchen. The home is very clean, cozy, and inviting. We had five people in our group of investigators and never felt cramped. So, all in all, a very enjoyable holiday experience in spite of the dark past and plethora of spirits still active at the property. They call me a bummer and a gym sock too, but what care I for praise? I wander around from town to town just like a roving sign. And the people all say there goes Tom Moore from the days of 49. In the days of old, in the days of gold, how oft times I repine. 
Many thanks to Elsie Lottie for agreeing to share her haunted home story. If you're interested in learning more about Bethany's home sweet haunted home, or maybe even want to stay there, check out bethanyshomesweethauntedhome.com, her Instagram page of the same name, TikTok, and, of course, Airbnb. If you have a haunted home story you'd like to share, please get in touch via my Instagram or by clicking the contact button at my website, hauntedhomespodcast.net. There was old lame Jess, a hard old cuss who never did repent. He was never known to miss a drink nor to ever spend a cent. But old lame Jess, like all the rest, to death he did resign. And in his bloom went up the flume in the days of 49. Now there was Poker Bill, one of the boys who was always in for a game. Now whether he lost or whether he won to him, it was all the same. He would ante up and draw his cards, he would go you a hat full blind. In the game of death, Bill lost his breath in the days of 49. In the days of old, in the days of gold, how oft times I repine for the days of old when we dug up the gold in the days of 49.